Hey, hey, Eric Bach here, and welcome to the Look Right Naked podcast. Joining me today, Christian Thibodeau, world-class coach. You can find him directly on Instagram at christian.thibodeau.tibarmy or directly on tibarmy.com. And of course, T Nation, he's incredibly active in the forums and always willing to give you world-class coaching advice. On this conversation, Christian and I dig into a number of incredible topics, including neurotype training. What type of training is best based on your individual brain chemistry? From there, we dig in to natural training versus enhanced. How should you be training if you are somebody who's natural versus somebody who's on anabolic steroids? And what type of differences should you expect? If you can't dial in this one factor, a lot of times you can be working incredibly hard in the gym, but not getting results. You really need to listen to that one in depth. Now, as you're listening to this podcast, If you're getting incredible value, please do me a favor. Give me a five-star review on whatever platform you are currently watching on, whether it's Spotify, whether you're listening on iTunes, or catching up on YouTube. Now, if you hit the share button and tag me at Bach Performance or Christian.Thibodeau.TibArmy over on Instagram, I will send over one of my favorite supplements from my friends over at Legion Performance. All right, that's what we got today. Let's jump into today's podcast. People always like structure and having some of those components, but sometimes you got to go a little bit outside the lines and that's when the real magic happens. Actually, it's quite similar to training. People love to have, I need 20 to 25 sets of this muscle group every single week when I don't know about you, but I've never sat down on a program and actually gone through and like, okay, did we have 20 sets that hit lats this week? Uh, what about triceps? What happened here? <laughs> the reality is, you know, using those honest. things to the framework. I'm going to be honest. I, I don't even follow programs. I've never followed programs. And it, that's kind of bad because I do sell programs. But, but my training has always been, I don't want to say instinctive. I always have a template. Like I know that today I want to work on that component. And depending on what's happening in the workout, then I will add exercises, change that exercise, or just make up the whole workout as I go along, depending on what I feel is needed to get the stimulus I want. Yeah, well, I think a big thing for you, Chris, is like you understand, obviously you understand the key principles that you're looking for. You understand biofeedback, the way that your body's reacting to different things. And by extension, and you've probably done thousands, tens of thousands of workouts and and done programming where you can really kind of slide in and be like, this is the right volume based on how I'm feeling, based on the response that I'm trying to generate right now. All to regulate based upon that component and you're in a much better spot. Yeah, and not only the fact, the other thing is that, and that's where most people, okay, everyone wants to know how many sets should I do, uh, how many reps should I do, and, and so on and so forth. The fact is that everybody is different, and recovery is not as simple as what people think it is. Uh, because not all work that you do in the gym or, or whatever in your training session has the same impact on the various systems involved in your body. So it's not just a matter of I have this amount of stress and I need to recover from that stress because each workout will have an impact on the central nervous system, on the peripheral nervous system, on the mechanical component, the muscles themselves, the tendons, the metabolic component. It will also increase some neurotransmitters like glutamate, which will make it harder to recover and and so on and so forth. And depending on the workout, each session will impact all these systems differently. And to make it more complicated, not everyone fatigue at the same rate from each individual workout. For example, like my wife, when she does, let's say a CrossFit workout or a spinning workout, she has no crashing energy and she can train just fine the next day. But if she does a bodybuilding workout, she's trashed for the day and just can't work out the next day because she feels unmotivated. Myself, for example, if I do strength work, I could literally do like three, two hours strength workout in one day. 
And I've once that, and, okay, and that's not a super smart thing to say online because people want to copy that workout. I remember I was in <laughs> and in the morning, I did 100 sets of bench press. Uh, but these were like one to three reps, but still like very heavy. And in the afternoon, I did 70 sets of bench press. So that's 170 sets of bench press in that day. And I hit a PR the next day. But if I do, uh, uh, let's say, either a, a zone three cardio session or uh, like a hard interval, I'm done. I'm wasted for two days. Yeah. If my wife does spinning classes, she's good for the next day. But if she goes running, which is a lot less work and less intensity in her spinning session, she's trashed for two days. So that's the thing. I mean, different types of workout affect different people differently. And I suspect that personal preferences has an impact on how much fatiguing a workout is, mostly because of psychological factors. I mean, if you freaking hate what you're doing, let's see, I'm jogging and every step I'm thinking, this sucks, this sucks, this sucks. I think that it does increase central fatigue because what causes central fatigue are essentially signal being sent by various zones of your, of your body, telling your brain that what you're doing is something that is not good for your body. You know, and you're putting yourself at harm. If you feel uncomfortable, for example, if, the, if, if it's too hot, if it's too cold, it does impact central fatigue. Uh, if it, it's uncomfortable from a, a pain perspective, it increases central fatigue. If it's something you're not used to doing, it increases central fatigue. But I believe that if you freaking hate what you're doing, it will also send a signal to the brain to try to create an inhibition so, so that you don't do it anymore, and that will increase fatigue. So there's a lot of things to consider when talking about like the volume you're doing, the frequency of training you're doing, and that varies from person to person. Well, that makes sense, especially when you mentioned some of the cognitive aspects. Like if you don't enjoy what you're doing, you know, you need 300 milligrams of caffeine and to watch as many motivational videos as you can just to get in and do a workout, you're really ramping yourself up before you even get there. And more or less, you're kind of blowing a gasket before you actually get under the bar and do anything. And so I think what happens a lot of times, people get so obsessed with all the information, all the data, all, all the qualitative and quantitative things you can look at regarding optimizing a training program recovery. And then what happens is they start trying to optimize something that it mm -hmm. haven't even locked in the consistency with yet, right? And I think that's where people get so bogged down with the evidence kind of based approach, which again, isn't bad. Like we should use studies. We should look at that stuff. But I don't think we should take these studies and just use that as the primary thing that we focus on before we really find out how our body responds. How do we feel about it? And then start to use the data to kind of point us in the right direction and then be able to navigate things a bit more individually. There are some things that we should like, keep in mind when talking about studies. Okay, First, studies typically present like an average response. And if you have a group of, of 10 people, like in the end, the response might be all over the place, but it averages out at, at a certain point. Yeah, you can look at standard uh, deviancies, but it, it still doesn't give you a full idea of what's going on. Uh, but more importantly, you look at the populations being involved in those studies. I, I would say that all studies are involving beginner lifters. Okay? Even the studies claiming that the lifters involved or the subject involved had an average of five years of weight training experience. For example, they always say, they often say that. But, but let me tell you this, okay? If you're someone who's passionate about training, you really want to maximize everything you're doing, it's likely that you love to tinker your with your training, always looking for the best ways to do things and do your own programming or learn from other programming, right? So is that person likely to accept for eight to 10 weeks to stop what they're doing, to do a very, very basic program 
designed by someone who likely doesn't train hard himself. And that's the only thing that you can do. There's like, there's no way a guy like you and me will be able to do that and stick no. with it. In fact, I would argue that most serious lifters would never go for that. Never. So, so even those with experience are really beginner lifters. And, and you've seen those guys in the gym, right? They've been in a gym. You've, you've been seeing them for the past 10 years, but they have not gained an ounce of muscle or a, a pound of strength. So, so in my opinion, they're still beginners. Just because you spend time in a building called the gym doesn't mean that you are more than beginner. Because if you have never trained hard enough to trigger adaptations, then your body is still from a, a stress uh, response a beginner. So those involved in studies are beginners, and beginners will respond differently than uh, than us, who, who actually have adapted quite a bit. Like the best example of that is volume would be a good example. If you are a beginner, a true beginner, or even someone who's never trained hard before, uh, it, there's a good chance you can't really push hard on your sets. You will actually hit artificial failure way before what would be true task failure. I mean, you literally fake yourself out because the brain doesn't know what limit the limit is. Okay, you can you're not comfortable with being uncomfortable. So obviously, if you don't go, you don't push your sets hard. You need more sets to get enough effective volume to trigger adaptations. But but the better you are at training hard, the more efficient you are neurologically speaking, that doesn't apply. You can't do as much volume and you don't need as much volume. Same thing with rest periods. I mean, the argument why longer rest periods are better for hypertrophy is that you cause central fatigue from a set. Central fatigue is a weakening of the central drive to the muscles. So if you have a weaker drive, then you can't recruit the fast twitch fibers as well. So you can't trigger as much growth, right? And that central fatigue is, is a protective mechanism to protect you against something that feels dangerous for your body. So there are signals being sent by the muscles, by the tendon to the fascia that tells the brain, this shit hurts. So if you are physically uncomfortable, if it's painful, like from the pump, like acidification of the muscle milieu, or if it's just injury related, or if it just feels hard, you create central fatigue. Now, here's the thing. It's exactly the same thing as if you work in a factory. If you start in a very noisy factory, the first day you're there, dude, it feels like freaking hell. I mean, you're super tired because that noise just kills you. And for a few weeks, it's like that, it's like that. But after a month, after two months, you still hear the noise. It's still the same noise, but it doesn't impact you. It doesn't fatigue you as much. So someone with lots of experience training, especially if they gradually worked to reduce their rest interval to increase their training density, even though the signals, the pain is still there, the pump is still there, the discomfort is still there, the brain knows now it's not a dangerous situation. So yeah, three minutes is probably optimal for someone with low training experience. But I've seen plenty of athletes, I've trained a football player who went from being, from needing, I'm just going to backtrack. So what we did was uh, before the pro season, uh, I wanted to work on being able to maintain a high level of his strength with short rest periods. Like in a drive, you have, depending on the league you're playing in, 35, 45 seconds, sometimes 25, depending on the league. Uh, so I wanted to be able to keep a great level of strength even with short rest period. So what we did was five sets of five with 80%, like the target was 80% of his max. He was bench pressing 520. So we used something like 420-ish. And the first set, he would do five reps. Then he would rest 45 seconds. We had to decrease to 365. And then the next set with 45 seconds of rest, 60 seconds of rest, we had to decrease to 315, then to 275 and finally to 255. Seemingly proving the central fatigue theory. 
But what happened is after six weeks of this, he was able to do 420 across the board for all sets of five with only 30 seconds of rest. I've had CrossFit athletes beat their snatch PR after sprinting a 400 meter sprint. So, so you can actually become more tolerant to the pain signal that causes central fatigue. And so you don't need as much respiration. So that's where science is a good starting point. Yeah, and as you mentioned, some of the work with the elite level athletes, it's like your worldview as a coach is, is changed when you see the way that their body can respond when they have a, a, a higher training age. And sometimes it makes you look back at some of these principles and be like, wait, what is actually the foundational component of these principles? Does it really make sense? Or is it 21 college age males who you know are living on macaroni and cheese and vodka who are following a training program despite not really having that concentrated time period of really optimizing their training? Now, one thing you mentioned was you know some of the neurological components, right? And the way that people can react differently to the style of training based on how they feel. That seems like a natural segue to jump into neurotype training. Can you just give me a kind of a baseline foundation? Like what are, how did you develop the neurotyping system? How did that well, come about? Just a quick recap. It's essentially using an evaluation of the person's personality profile to try to say, okay, what, what is their neurological profile? Which neurotransmitter system are more and less efficient? Uh, I mean, I, I'm basing myself a lot on the work of originally uh, Cloninger on this, who, who did work on personality profile and addiction, uh, but also on the work of, of Jordan Peterson. A good video that Jordan posted, about, it's an online course he has. He said that like as much as 80% of our traits are inherited. They are genetic. And you can only change within that range of that component. You have still have a 20% where you can actually force yourself to change or if you have stressors that will change your profile. But the point is that your personality is actually made up of which neurotransmitters are high or low or how you respond to them. And each neurotransmitter has an impact on behavior and also on your capacity to perform. So if you can, I wouldn't say guess, but if you can have a way of evaluating or predicting this is your neurological profile, then we can learn to tinker with the training uh, to take advantage of that. Like for someone, for example, someone who has uh, low serotonin level, low acetylcholine level, they can't deal with variation. From a, an anxiety perspective, changing exercises too often, changing tasks too often uh, has actually become anxiolytic. It, it creates anxiety. The, the, the reason yeah. why people are naturally anxious, okay, people who are naturally uh, like more OCD-like behavior, people who internalize their stress a lot. Uh, these people, you'll notice that they are routine-based. They, they always like to do the same things the same way. Uh, they feel unsettled when things changes. They have a hard time adapting to suddenly changing situations uh, and so on and so forth. But these are only protective strategies to subconsciously reduce anxiety. Anxiety is nothing more than your neurons firing too fast. They actually are too amped up. So you're losing control of your thought process. So anything that shocks you will, will speed up your, your nervous system because the nervous system, well, you know what? That's unknown. I need to figure out how to do it. So it increases brain powers 
new, neuron speed of, uh, of firing. And if you increase it too much, it, you become anxious. If you're naturally anxious, the last thing you want is to speed up those neurons even more. So you don't want any situation, anything that will lead to stress. I mean, and when it comes to training, why is it important? Well, first, because if you're anxious, you're not going to be able to train hard. And it will actually increase your chance of injuries because it introduces mobility. Anxiety neuron firing too fast increases muscle tightness okay if we go from a spectrum okay from inhibited state like you are super relaxed i'm chill just out of bed or watching netflix or whatever i'm calm my muscle tone is much lower okay my muscles are softer because my body thinks I don't need to be ready for an aggressive reaction, uh, an impulsive reaction, because I'm relaxing. So the muscle tone is kept low. Now, if you amp your nervous system up slightly, muscle tone will increase a bit. It becomes, muscles become harder, which is a partial state of activation, so that if you are in a situation where you suddenly have to fight a tiger, or run away from a tiger, well, you don't have as much room to make make up for. I mean, you can go from here to here rather than from here yeah. to here. Right? So it keeps your body ready. But if you increase too much your nervous system activation, then the increase in muscle tone becomes tight muscle. And that's one of the main reasons why athletes choke under pressure. Because if your muscles tighten up, it changes your mechanics. And in training, we can see the same thing. You have someone, for example, who's naturally anxious, you ask them to do a bodyweight squat. And the bodyweight squat looks perfect, okay? Like good depth, good hips position, everything looks fine. But the moment you put even an empty bar on their shoulders, it all goes to hell. Crumble, they look like a turtle position, and they can't go further in a quarter squat or something like that. Or you see that when you're squatting a with a client, they have 100 pounds on the bar, and they do 10 reps. Then you put 105, and they will barely do one rep because they can't maintain proper technique. Why would you have good technique with 100, but not with 105? It's because the anxiety creates tightness, especially in the flexor muscle. We have flexors, hamstrings, pec minor, traps. When I'm giving a seminar, for example, my, my traps, my hip flexors, my hamstrings feel like I did like 10 sets of 10 reps. Okay, it blows up. And, and you know, I can, I can front squat three, 400, like just waking up, right? After a seminar, I can't do a body weight squat. My, my hip flexors are too tight. So, so that's something you need to consider. If you create anxiety in someone, they're going to have a hard time doing the movement. And, and as a coach, I'm sure you had people, you know, you send them a program or you just spend 30 minutes explaining them how to back squat. But then they're going to ask you like 25 questions. Why do I do this? Should I do this? And said, I've seen a video of efforting doing it differently. Should I do that? It's not because they are doubting you. It's because they are anxious. And that's a strategy to calm themselves. They, want, they need to understand the task 100%. So that's why the variation for them is their downfall. Because it takes a long time to really master a skill. That's an example. So that, that, that's obviously just one example, but we can go through all the personality profile and, and bore everyone to death, but that's basically what it is. Understanding someone's personality so that you can better interact with them and also have clues because it's not, you need to do this if you like that. You need more variation, more frequency, whatever. Well, that makes sense. And one thing that you said really stood out to me and it was when you're anxious, you tend to have a lot more tightness. And so one common thing, we've probably seen this thousands of times in the gym, you get somebody up and they have a mental block around a certain weight, 225 bench, 315 squat for the first time, 405 deadlift, right? Like that's what you see a lot. How much of that do you think is anxiety driven based oh, on that number? I was training this uh, CrossFit girl. 
pretty high level. At that time, she was third in Canada. Back then, only the, the top two at regionals would make it to the games. She was third because the number one was Camille Leblanc-Bazinet, who won the games, and Michelle Letendre, who was top five several times. But she was, like, very close to them. And in, in Olympic weightlifting, she was better than, she, than they were. Because that, that, and that was the, the part I was involved with. I, I didn't train her CrossFit skills. I trained her, her Olympic lifts. So that year, the guy, the guy who was doing her programming decided to put her on a shit ton of lactate work. Okay? Because that's her, her, that's her weakness. Okay? She was a former national level gymnast where gymnastic skills were awesome. And she was a naturally skilled weightlifter. She could have won the national championships in weightlifting. What, and her endurance, her Arabic endurance was pretty good. But when it came to tolerating lactate, she just couldn't do it. So her reasoning was, I'm going to put her on a shit ton of that and reduce the amount of gymnastic and reduce the amount of weightlifting she was doing. And what actually happened is it crushed her. I mean, that created so much fatigue that come when, when the Open came, the first four weeks of the Open, her performance was dismal. Like she was like ranked 250th in Canada, something like that, right? The thir yeah. 30th made it to the, the regionals. She was barely able to get in because I told her, you know what, for the last week, don't do anything. Like don't train at all, just recover and just do the what. Okay. And she, she was able to scrap by because she had a very good last week. And like 10 or 15 girls who qualified decided to go as a team in teams. So, so it, it opened up 15 spots and she could barely get in, even though she was supposed to be one of the favorite. So now she's super down, right? She's negative. I'm going to get my, I'm going to get trash. So we're in the gym and I figure, okay, she needs a PR on the Olympic lift. J just mentally to say, like, I'm, I'm still good. I can still perform. So we, uh, we we're gonna go with her, her best movement, uh, the squat clean. Uh, at the time, she was doing like 255, which was very good back then. The girls are stronger now, but for back then, it was pretty darn good. So we, we're working, we're working, and it's smooth, it's powerful. I say, yeah, we can really go far. She actually hit like a 240 power clean. So I'm saying, okay, there's no way she doesn't break. No doubt. So now we go up to like 255, which was a PR, and she deadlifted. She doesn't even try to go under the bar. And she tried it again. She actually like, lifted two inches. And then she goes like, like this, um, I'm done, I'm done. And I go to her and say, Jess, I'm going to give you the option of doing something. I know a technique that will boost neurological output by around 15%, which will dramatically increase your strength. But there are two catches. First, it can only work once because there is a very fast neurological habituation. I mean, I'm using that super scientific language, right? High rate of habituation. My goal was to use it before the ladder at regionals so that you can win the clean ladder. But I'm figuring maybe it's better to do it now so you can break your PR, right? Okay. Do you want to use it right now? Say, so, yeah, I want to use it right now, Chris. Okay, I, I need this, sure. Okay, the second thing though is that the potentiation effect only lasts for around eight seconds, highly specific, eight seconds. Okay, okay. So, so you need to move to the bar fast once I'm, I'm doing that trick with you because if you don't start lifting the bar within eight seconds, it won't work. So I'm actually changing the bar, putting it on a platform closer to the wall because we need the wall to do that trick. Yeah. So, so I'm saying, okay, Jess, you're gonna stand in front, of, in front of the wall. Okay, just make sure that you know where the bar is, right? You're gonna close your eyes, stand in front of the wall, and at the same time, what you do, strike the wall as hard as you can and tap your right foot on the floor as hard as humanly possible. While you're doing that, as soon as the contact is made, you need to contract your heart, your abs, and your glutes as hard as humanly possible. You need to do that all at the same time. 
and as violently as possible. Then you have eight seconds to lift that freaking bar. Like there's 265 on the bar that we're doing, something like that. So, so are, you, are you ready? It's, it's only gonna work once, so don't mess it up, right? So she goes on the bar and, they, and I'm clapping my hands and boom, boom, she goes at the bar and super easy 265 clean. Like, Chris, it worked, it worked. Dude, I, I, I made that up completely. That, that <laughs> but, but it took her mind off of, okay, that's heavy, that's hard. And she was convinced that it was, was going to work. I mean, I did the same thing with D lineman from uh, this 49ers and had the same effect on his bench press. Like his bench press literally went up 50 pounds. <laughs> that's just crazy how the mind works. Another example is I was having this, uh, this CrossFit girl and her snatch was stuck at something like 155 forever. 150 would be super easy, super smooth, and 155, she would just do a pull. So what I would do is use a combination of pound and kilo plates. And I also would use fractional plates. So she had no idea how much was on the bar, and then she would hit her PR. So the mind is very powerful. <laughs> more importantly, on the, the anxiety is a very detrimental tool to performance. Yeah, definitely. And that's why we have to take sometimes these external stressors that are going on as well and understand that mindset that you have when you're approaching the gym at any given time and how that's going to impact your performance, which is why the lifestyle components are often the things that prevent most people really from dialing up to that next level, especially once they leave that beginner stage of training. One more question on the neurotype component here. Let's say you have somebody who's kind of your classic type A, likes to run through walls. What type of programming would you recommend for them? Would it be a higher volume approach? Would it be higher frequency, lower frequency? Like what are some generalities that you would the optimize for somebody? component is that they need to push a system to its limit or close to it in that workout. Depending on which system you're selecting, it's gonna impact how the other variables are planned. For example, if what we're shooting for as a system is the nervous system, so they need to push that nervous system really hard, then it means very heavy lifting, right? If they do very heavy lifting, the volume has to go down. That's, just a, that's a given. If the system they're using is more the mechanical system, the muscles themselves, we can make the same thing. It means that they will need to go to failure because they need to feel like they're winning that set, like they're giving everything they've got to that set, right? Uh, so, so because they're going to failure, they can't do as many sets or shouldn't do as many sets. Now, if they're working on the metabolic system, whether it is hard cardio or it is like higher rep stuff or, or giant sets or whatever, now they need to dial down the intensity and dial down the load they're using because they're pushing that metabolic conditioning aspect to its limit. So basically they need to feel like they're giving everything they have on that capacity. So normally it means that they should have a lower volume of work per session, uh, but I would argue that they probably need more frequent sessions because they need that dopamine fix, adrenaline fix. The problem is a pure type 1A, like the, the person, okay, the, the best way to, uh, so that people understand what a type 1A is, is Donald Trump. Uh, like uh, someone who will do anything to win, uh, as someone who needs to be number one in everything, needs to win all the time. You do a game of Monopoly with your like 10 year old nephew, you, you will literally like throw stuff at him if he's winning. And the funny thing was what, what one pays when you were having a discussion with them is even if you have the same opinion, they will still argue against you. They, they kind of like, they want to win the argument, even though you are arguing the same side of the argument. That, that's always really hard. And when you're yep. telling stories, they always need to come up with a better story. So that, that's how they are. So they, they, they need that rush 
to to every day. Otherwise, they'll do some crazy shit. I mean, the athlete who when he when he's injured or when, let's say you have a, a week off from practice and games, he will go in the Alps and and get injured skiing, or they will go in, they will get into a bar fight because they they need to do something. When it's peaceful, they're not comfortable. That's why they are often seen as troublemakers because they are highly uncomfortable in a peaceful situation. They need to be challenged. They need to be able to win. And you don't win in peacetime. So by having more frequent workouts, then you kind of, it's not because they respond better from more frequent workouts. It's just that it controls their behavior a bit more. And so what, conversely, like what's a 1B? A 1B would be kind of like you, like uh, someone who's extremely athletic, uh, someone who can handle lots of variation, who actually needs variation. Not variation in necessarily in exercises, but in the type of stimulus. I mean, they are great at explosive work. They have a high level of acetylcholine. Uh, acetylcholine is the neurotransmitter responsible for motor learning and learning in general, as well as information retrieval. All the best CrossFitters have high level of acetylcholine. The reason is that once they have mastered a movement skill, it's very easy for them to retrieve it. So they don't need to keep practicing it. Also, they, they have very good capacity to transfer gains from one movement to another movement. Like if you're an athlete and you're 1B, the stuff you do in the gym will transfer very well to on the field. But someone who would be like a, a, a type 1A or type 2B, the gains they made in the gym don't always translate to improved gain performance because the, the, the lower acetylcholine decreases their capacity to transfer. Furthermore, acetylcholine also increases the strength of the stretch reflex. So it makes them better in everything ex explosive. If you want someone who can maximally adapt to any situation, you want both isotylcholine and high serotonin, which is what 1Bs have. So they, because both neurotransmitters allow you to deal with constantly changing situations. And when you have that, then you can do explosive work on one day. You can do strength work on another day. You can do bodybuilding work. Then you can do it with endurance. Then you can go with sports practices. And you never get tired from that. Uh, if you have a one A on that, they will burn out with that because it's just too many different stimuli. Uh, but yeah, so so they would they would do very well on explosive work, uh, using the stretch reflex, uh, trading more for performance. And from a behavior perspective, they are extremely self confident, but not to the point of being arrogant. So that's not quite Donald Trump. <laughs> well, they, they are uh, people who will never back down from a challenge because they know their worth, but they don't try to impose themselves on others. So they would be like the, the person who leads by example rather than the one who is like a dictator on saying, you need to do this, you need to do that. Did you read my neurotype profile when I uh, went through that course? <laughs> yeah, you can very easily, see, just by the way you carry yourself. I mean, you're someone who's extremely athletic. Uh, you're very comfortable talking to people. Uh, you're charismatic. So so these are all traits of, of, of 1Bs. I'm a 2A. 2A is kind of a 1B light. So I'm like a 1B, but lower level of self-esteem. So I need to be in a state of high adrenaline to be like a 1B, like more confident, thinking faster. But if adrenaline is low, I mean, if you go to like, so when people come to my, my seminars, that's always the thing that strikes them. If they come to me at the beginning of the seminar, now, I can't even establish eye contact. I speak like someone who barely speaks English. I, mean, I don't speak great English, but I, I can communicate. But when they come to me, dude, I, I can't like put two words together. Like literally, I, I, I sound like a three-year-old kid. And I can be <laughs> in their place and say, dude, 
I'm going to be spending six hours listening to that guy. But then when adrenaline kicks in, boom, I'm like uh, Dr. Banner and the Hulk. Uh, I mean, it's changing. Now, for example, if, if 1B were a superhero, it would be probably Superman. The 2A would be Hulk, or it could be Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, depending on the situation. So that's an, a, a good way of understanding the difference. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense, though. Again, understanding the way that you're wired, a lot of the traits that you have can play a huge role in the type of training that's going to work best for you and the way that you should program. Now, I want to pivot a little bit. and Let's talk about some of the training differences and the approaches that you would take when you've got somebody who's natural versus somebody who's enhanced. I think one of the biggest issues that I see would be people who are maybe a little bit less experienced in the gym. They try to directly apply one training method that they see, you know, maybe from somebody getting ready for the Olympia and think, you know what? I'm going to be able to maximally build muscle, lose body fat, have a recomposition with this process. Where would you begin that discussion? Being enhanced doesn't just increase your capacity to recover from, from, from training stress. It doesn't just increase protein synthesis. Most people think that if I'm taking steroids, the only thing it does is it makes you build muscle faster, okay? It, that's not accurate. It actually changes both your physiology and neurology completely. So you actually don't even respond to the training stress the same way. For example, uh, something that is not well known is that anabolic steroids increase hypertrophy mostly in the slow twitch fibers. And that is counterintuitive because people gain strength yeah. very rapidly on, on, on steroids and they oftentimes become more explosive. But what happens is steroids, because especially those that are more endogenic, kind of make the slow twitch fibers similar to fast twitch fibers, which is why people with normally higher ratios of slow twitch fibers will have the most dramatic transformation from taking steroids. If you take someone who is extremely fast twitch dominant, yeah, of course, they're going to get bigger. Everybody on steroids will get bigger. But the difference from natural to enhanced is not as dramatic as someone who has an ectomorph with slow twitch fibers. That guy will completely morph into a different species because someone who is natural, if they have a lower ratio of slow twitch fibers, their hypertrophy potential is much lower. Their strength potential is much lower. But steroids change that equation. It makes the slow twitch fibers as capable as the fast twitch fibers at getting stronger and bigger. So in their sense, so that's why volume approach works well for enhanced lifters because volume work tend to focus more on slow twitch fibers because the more volume you do, the less load you're using. Yes, at the end of your set, you do reach the fast twitch fibers, but you do a lot of volume that for natural might not be effective reps because you don't yet reach the fast twitch fibers. So for example, if I'm doing a set of 20 reps, okay, only the last four to six will recruit the fast twitch fibers because of accumulated fatigue. It forces you to tap into those fast twitch fibers. But the first 15 reps, for example, will not target the, the fast twitch fibers. So for our natural lifters, those first 15 reps don't promote a lot of growth, if any, right? But if someone is using anabolic steroids because it makes the slow twitch fibers more responsive, those first 15 reps are actually very effective because they don't need to recruit the fast twitch fibers for a set to work. For example, uh, supersets. Supersets for a natural lifter, they're not more effective than doing this both exercises separately because the, the, you create more fatigue, more central fatigue. So you might actually have a harder time recruiting the fast twitch fibers. But if you're enhanced, doesn't matter. Shorter rest periods work better. Longer rest periods will work better within, uh, with natural lifters because if you have less central fatigue, you can recruit the fast twitch fibers more easily. But enhanced lifters don't need to do that. They can rest 45, 60 seconds 
and grow because they don't have the same burden as naturals do in recruiting the fast switch fibers because they're slow switch fibers, their response is enhanced because of the product. So that's the first thing. So strictly from a programming approach standpoint, I would argue that someone who's just looking for building muscle because strength is a different animal. Then enhanced lifters should do more volume. They probably, and because they're doing more volume, they should probably cut their rest periods. Otherwise the workout will last way too long. And then it becomes a, a problem of maintaining focus and all that stuff. And they, they don't need to go to failure as much because again, going to failure on a set is mostly to make sure that you reach those reps that promoting growth, those that recruit the fast switch fibers. So if the five, last five, five reps of a set recruit the fast switch fibers and you stop three reps short of failure, now you only have two reps that will recruit the fast switch fibers. So a natural lifter, they, you want as many of those effective reps as possible. Not necessarily going to failure, but certainly close to it. But an enhanced lifter, they don't have that burden because any rep will become an effective rep or fairly effective because slow touch fibers because more become more responsive. Now for strength, that would be a different thing because again, some steroids is not just a matter of increasing protein synthesis. It changes the nervous system. Like some steroids, for example, mostly the DHT classes, like Masteron, like Primo, like Anavar, Stenozolol, they have a very strong potentiation effect on the nervous system. So it, it speeds up your neural connection and increases the, the strength of the signal sent to the muscles. That will make you stronger, even if it doesn't make you bigger. That's why someone can go on an oral DHT-based steroid and get stronger within a day. Or even two days. Say so that's incredible. Yeah, because it's it potentially the nervous system. It can also make you stronger without having to build muscle. So that changes things. But the issue is that many of those steroids will make the tendons weaker because it decreases collagen synthesis. DECA would be the, the opposite. It does speed up collagen synthesis. But most steroids, especially the DHTs, will slow down collagen synthesis, making the tendons actually weaker. That's why you have so many tendon tears nowadays in, in sports, because the muscles become super strong, the nervous system becomes even stronger, but you don't have the tendinous tissue to be able to support that. So again, if you use the same approach as you would with bodybuilding, so you, you enhance, so you should do more volume, that doesn't work because more volume of heavy lifting, when you enhance, it will get you injured. You do need to understand that. Also, some steroids will increase the sensitivity of the beta-adrenergic receptors. Why is that important? Well, it's another thing that tells you you can do more volume. The beta-adrenergic receptors are the receptors that interact with adrenaline. So adrenaline binds to the beta-adrenergic receptors and stuff happens. At the muscle, it increases strength, it increases contraction velocity. At the heart, uh, it will increase the contraction strength of the heart and the, 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 the speed of contraction. So it increases blood delivery to the muscles and also oxygen delivery to muscles. So it makes you better at, at endurance. In the nervous system, it increases motivation, drive, focus, competitiveness. What we call overtraining. More often than not, it's a downregulation, a desensitization of those receptors. So we stop responding to our own adrenaline. And that is magnified by people who take those pre-workout stimulants because it just over, over those receptors and they become resistant. So the problem when, when that happens is now your strength goes down, your speed goes down, your motivation goes down. And that's another reason why steroids allow you to do more volume and even more frequency because it prevents that downregulation from happening because it actually does the opposite. It makes them more sensitive to adrenaline. And when we talk about roid rage, uh, that's what happens. What happens, what causes roid rage and why not all steroids do it and not everybody has it is that 
some steroids will make you more sensitive to your own adrenaline. Now, adrenaline puts you in that fight or flight mode. So from a behavioral standpoint, you're more competitive, you're less patient, you're more intolerant, and you will be more conflictual. So, so, and you are also uh, less agreeable. So all of that puts you in that warrior mode. And if you are already someone with a short fuse, it will put you in that asshole mode. But not everything, every star would do that. Like Trembolone is notorious for doing it because it has a very, very, very strong effect on the beta adrenergic receptors. Uh, Allotestin, mibolarone will, will also do that. Testosterone in high, high dosages. Other steroids actually have this, the, the, the opposite effect. Some steroids will increase serotonin and dopamine like Dynabol, which actually will calm you down. So it, it, again, it, it's not just I'm taking steroids. It's a lot more complicated than that. But generally speaking, for bodybuilding, they can and should do more volume for strength. They probably need to do less volume because they're doing the heavy work, but more frequency. Big differences there. And as you mentioned, there's a lot of nuance. I think a lot of people just look at, you know, we see it on social media all the time. See somebody's ripped. You look at the comments. This person's on, on gear, whatever it is. Like, you know, there's so many different levels of things that have to be factored in. Dosages, what specific products are being used and the overall training and the recovery process that really comes with it across the board. Now, Chris, you've got a brand new book. Well, not brand new, but pretty new. The Overload System. Tell me about The Overload System. I just finished reading it. I, like you, love to dig into the history of strength training and performance and strongman. So I thoroughly enjoyed nerding out on this one. Tell me a bit more about it. Well, it's my less scientific book. Not because I want it to be like against the grain and everybody wants to be overly scientific nowadays, but I do think that people want, okay, a lot of people science their way out of hard work. That's something I noticed. They, they are just looking for justification. And let's be honest, the newer generation isn't as hardworking as the previous generation. I mean, from your generation, then my generation and those before us were much harder working than nowadays. I've noticed that when I coach football, I've noticed that when I interact with younger guys. And again, it's not the kid's fault because a kid, when he's brought into the world, it's the same kid as 50 years ago. What changes is the way he's being brought up. Parents' interaction now nowadays, parents, because maybe because they're tired, I mean, understand that I'm a parent, uh, but when the kid acts out or comes back from school, instead of taking the time to do activities with them, they just put them on a, on a TV. And that just developed laziness and lack of resiliency. The reason is, and I'm going completely on a tangent with this, is that any flat screen works by emitting what's called a blue light, okay? Uh, blue light is highly dopaminergic, so it stimulates the dopamine receptors. Why is that important? Because dopamine, the dopaminergic system, is the, people like to call it the pleasure neurotransmitter or the pleasure neurotransmitter system because it does work by stimulating a pleasure response to the brain. But really dopamine is the survival neurotransmitter because it used to give you a sense of pleasure whenever you did something that would favor the survival of the species. Okay, that, that's why it's designed. That's, I mean, humans are not built to be happy. Humans are built to survive. Now, the tool that the, our physiology uses to survive is to make anything favorable to survival a pleasurable experience. So you have sex, you have a pleasure response. You eat a good meal, you have a pleasure response. You kill an opponent, you have a pleasure response. You win at something, you have a pleasure response. You accomplish an important task, you have a pleasure response. That is to motivate you to do those tasks again to increase the likelihood of survival, right? The problem is that in our modern world, we have many stimuli 
that are stronger stimulized for the dopaminergic system than what we normally naturally have. So, and flat screen TV or video games, video games are actually worse because you have the pleasure of winning on top of the blue light and the pleasure of, of playing. So it gives you a pleasure response so much stronger, so much stronger than anything you can have in a natural setting that, and it's without effort. So you never learn the connection between pleasure, reward, and effort. So you kind of like bypass that. I know many, many kids or, or even adults who would prefer, if given the choice, between playing video games or watching Netflix and having sex, they would pick the video game in Netflix because it actually, for them, gives them a bigger pleasure response. So you have people who now lack motivation because if the, the expected pleasure response from accomplishing a task, let's say having a good workout, if the pleasure response is not worth the perceived effort, why would I do it? I can just go watch TV. I'm going to get the same pleasure response. See what I mean? So you have a generation because of all of that, that is a lot less resilient, less hardworking. They want the results easier. And again, it's just because that's the way their brain has been programmed uh, because of technology. So, so that, that's just a fact. So they are, but they still want the results. So they actually want to be told that they can have the results with less effort. That's why, for example, like Mike Menzer's type training is making a comeback. Because people want to believe I can train for 15 minutes a day and I'm going to get jacked. And ironically, that's also why the volume-based guys are becoming more popular because you don't have to push your sets hard. You just have to do lots of sets. Okay, so you never work hard. You just work a lot. So anyway, I don't even know what the original and the original question was, but that's my tangent. No, honestly, I love the tangent. Our kids are very similar in age, so I can can definitely relate to that. And, you know, something that you mentioned, though, you kind of talked about Mike Metzen and the high volume, you know, the low volume approach. Listen, personally, I love going lower volume because I know how to take things right to that edge but not past the edge or I'm going to break down. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people right now that I'm seeing are hopping on. Yeah, I love the low volume, but I really taking these sets to within one or two reps in reserve while still optimizing technique in many cases, not. And then of course, on the flip side, the volume approach, a lot of people then try to push the volume on the flip side, but they don't train with enough intensity and focus in terms of executing things pristinely. And so I think a big takeaway, at least from the training component there is the quality in which you execute each and every single rep plays such a big role. And that needs to be mastered before jumping into high volume or low volume. You have to know how to train before you can optimally design a training program. That's and that's where, one big piece. But that's where volume can actually be interesting if you do it the right way. And when, I understand that when I say volume, I'm not talking about like bodybuilding, like Olympia-like volume. I'm just talking about using a, an approach where you gradually increase volume to your training cycle. So to me, a volume-based approach is a program that, yes, uses a bit higher volume, but really the reason why I call it volume-based is that throughout the cycle, the, the variable you use to increase the training stress gradually is volume. Uh, because if you want to pro keep progressing during your training cycle, you need to gradually increase the training stress because that's the way training works. When you impose a stress, then you adapt to that stress. So the next time you, you have that same stress, it's a slightly less effective. So you need to gradually increase it. With volume-based, you, you, maybe you go from, let's say, 60 work sets a week for the whole body, of course, not for muscle, and you might end up, at, let's say, 80 or 90 sets over 12 weeks. For example, that would be a volume-based approach. What I like with the volume-based approach is that you don't have the burden of pushing those sets to the limit. So if I'm in a state where I need to learn technical mastery, I do get more total repetitions. So more opportunities to practice. But as you mentioned, 
if you don't reach a certain threshold of effort, then you're never doing reps that will contribute to muscle growth. So you're just doing, well, it's still going to improve you from a technique perspective, but it doesn't build muscle. Uh, and again, if you go to failure too early in your training progression, then you're probably never going to learn proper technique because subconsciously when you reach a point in your set, either because the load is too heavy or because you have too much fatigue, you will always modify your technique to put yourself either in an advantageous position or to change the muscle recruitment to focus more on your stronger muscle. So that's why, when you, for example, when you have someone doing a bench press, uh, when they are tired, you see the shoulders will move up because they want to press with their shoulders instead of staying tucked down and pressing with the chest. Uh, so if you want to learn proper technique, I would say, I would argue that the volume-based approach is better if you're mindful about your, your technical uh, application. Yeah, volume with crappy technique is just really re-ingraining shitty reps, which can be harder and harder to break the more you do it. And it reminds me of the book, Perfect Practice Makes Perfect. I believe that's the title of the book, right? Awesome. Chris, it's been an absolute pleasure. Where can we learn more about you? Where can we follow you? Where can we learn from you? Spill all those details for us. Uh, well, I have my own website, Tibarmi. Uh, basically, it's very easy because my social media is also Tibarmi. My YouTube channel is Tibarmi. I confess that I haven't done a lot of work for my YouTube, but uh, we're going to try to make that grow over the, over the years. Also, obviously, where you and I are hang out at, at tnation.com. And I think that right now with Tnation, we're moving more toward developing a sense of community. Uh, so I know that myself, for example, I, I dramatically increased uh, my interaction on the forum. Uh, so if people have questions for us, then you can always reach us on those Tnation forums. Awesome. Thank you, Chris. Hey, it's Eric here again. Now, there are three ways that I can help you look great naked. Number one, if you want to grab a free copy of the Look Great Naked Protocol to help you lose body fat without counting calories, then go to bachperformance.com backslash free training. Number two, if you're a busy guy looking to build muscle, then I recommend checking out our Minimalist Muscle Blitz, which has helped over 1,000 men build muscle without living in the gym. Just go to minimalistmuscleblitz.com. The link will also be available in the show notes. Or number three, and last, if you want to work with me directly and get the best results possible, apply at bachperformance.com backslash coaching to look great naked without living in the gym. Until next time, my friend, 